It's a lot of fun. What I'm doing today, inshallah ta'ala, because uh, today will actually be the last session. We actually won't meet tomorrow because I have to travel early the next morning. So I'm fast-forwarding. I'm going to skip several chapters. As I mentioned to you yesterday, he was talking about regular devotions, ibadat, in which he began by speaking about praying extra nawafil, extra salah. And then there was going to be another chapter on, and we didn't finish that chapter, first of all, on nawafil salah, then there was a chapter on recitation of Quran, then a chapter on zikr of Allah subhanahu ta'ala, then a chapter on fikr, reflection, and contemplation on Allah subhanahu ta'ala. Then again will come a series of chapters, again covering the ibadat. What I wanted to do today was cover a few of the sections that come towards the second half of the book, which pertain to akhlaq. So I'm skipping ahead to that, and this is now we are on chapter 23, which is on social duties. Imam Ta'ala, as is the case, this is the tra- chapter when he makes the transition, if you will, from the spiritual to the ethical and moral. So the first paragraph will be a rabd, or a way to connect these two. So it begins by saying that deal justly with those in your charge, whether public or personal. Be altogether protecting and solicitous, solicitous for them. For Allah Ta'ala will call you to account in their regard, and every shepherd will be asked to account for his flock. This is a saying of Nabi Kareem Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that every shepherd will be asked to account for his flock. Then he continues, by your personal charges, I mean your seven organs, which in your tongue, ears, eyes, stomach, genitals, hands, and feet, these are your charges which Allah Ta'ala has given you, and a trust with which he has entrusted you, and they're an amana from Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala, which you should restrain from sin and use in his obedience. So this is his rub, when people talk that you must behave with adab, and properly, and justly, and fairly with those with whom you interact. So what he begins here by saying is you must first have proper adab and comportment with your own organs and limbs. And if you're not able to use your own organs and limbs with adab, then how are you going to be able to interact with others with adab when your own internal system is not based on adab? So he mentions the famous seven things, which is your tongue, that means your speech, your ears, your hearing, your eyes, your seeing, your stomach. But do not put anything that is ghair tayyib in it. Do not put anything which is ghair halal in it. Do not use it for gluttony and obesity. Do not overeat. Do not do israf. Like Allah that you may eat and you may drink, but not do not go to excesses in either of these two things. It can also be meant that do not fill it with even pure and wholesome nourishment which has been acquired through unlawful or doubtful income or earning. So the earning and the eating, all of that is represented simply by this one word, stomach. Genitals, it suggests to kanaya, it means your modesty. Do not use your lustful self or lustful capacity or lustful organs in any way that is inappropriate or unbefitting the conduct of a believer in any way that is displeasing or forbidden to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Hands and feet here are symbolic of a'mal of your actions. Do not do anything outwardly. Do not commit any act. Do not commit any deed. Walk towards any deed. Proceed towards any deed which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not wish you to do. So these are the first amanat. 
And these are indeed the things that Allah Ta'ala will ask us about first on the Day of Judgment. In other words, yes, we will be asked that how are you with your neighbors and how are you with your family and all of that's coming in the chapter. But you'll also be asked firstly this, that how did you use your eyes and how did you use your ears and how did you use your tongue and how did you use your hands and feet and your bodily ability and how did you earn and from whence did you eat? For Allah subhanahu wa created them, all of these seven organs, only that by means of them you might obey Him. And they are among the greatest of His favors, for, we, for which we should thank Him by using them to obey Him and not using them in His disobedience. If you do not do this, means if you do not use these seven things strictly in His obedience, you will be turning Allah Ta'ala's favor into ingrat- ingratitude. And the grateful is obedience and disobedience is ungrateful. Had Allah subhanahu wa not made these organs to be your servants and had he not made them to obey you by disposition, you would not have been able to use them to disobey him at all. So it's a very interesting thing. It's talking about free will. That your ability in the first place to even have this choice whether you were gratefully obedient or ungratefully disobedient is because Allah Ta'ala gave you power and control. You have a choice what you see or what you don't see, what you say with your tongue or what you don't say, how you earn and what you eat. These are your own choices. That itself should humble a person. That Allah Ta'ala gave me kuwa, a limited kuwa, in a sense of certain power. And asullahawla wa la quwata illa billah. That Allah Ta'ala gave me a kuwa and ikhtiyar, a power and ability on how to live my life. And therefore, every choice I make has to be done for Allah subhanahu wa sake. When you intend to use any of them sinfully, it says in its own way. So again, he's not suggesting that it says this literally. But in its own way, it makes a kind of protest. And he's taking this because on the Day of Judgment, Allah Ta'ala has mentioned in Quran, that on the Day of Judgment, Allah Ta'ala will set a seal on us, and our own organs and limbs will testify. Now when they testify against us on the Day of Judgment, it's not because they discovered how we use them on that day, they were aware, they had hiss, they were aware. While we were using them for sin, they were aware that they were being used for sin. And they were also aware that they've been created by Allah Ta'ala, and that Allah Ta'ala gave us power over them only as an amana. So he writes, when you intend to use any of them sinfully, it says in its own way, O servant of Allah, fear Allah Ta'ala. Do not force me to commit that which Allah Ta'ala has forbidden me. If you still then commit a sin, it turns to Allah Ta'ala and says, I forbade him, O Rabb, but he did not listen. I am innocent of what he did. Allah Akbar. So the tongue professing its innocence to Allah Ta'ala for the lies the person made their tongue use. You will one day stand before Allah Ta'ala and these organs will testify to every good or every evil in which you use them. On then he quotes from Quran al on a day which cannot be averted, brought on by Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, you will then have neither refuge nor denial. And then he quotes from another verse of Quran. That on a day that neither their wealth nor their children will be of any avail to them, only those who come to Allah Ta'ala with a qalbin salim, with a pure and noble heart. So this was the transition part. Alright? And this is what he meant by the personal charges. The next part, and again this is really the link, because the true Muslim is able to do both. He's able to use their limbs, organs, and actions for the sake of Allah Ta'ala, and now to do the rest of what he talks about. As for your public charges, 
These are all the people entrusted by Allah Ta'ala to your custody, such as children, wife, now I'll use a more modern translation for this relevant to today's time, children, wife, household staff, domestic help, attendants, employees, etc. All of whom are part of your charge. It is your duty to guide them to the performance of that which Allah Ta'ala has made obligatory and the avoidance of that which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has forbidden. So that's one notion here. The first thing that's mentioned here, because the greatest right a human has on another human being is that if a human has any hidayah, any hidayah, then they must share that hidayah with their fellow human beings. That's the greatest right. Even more than kindness, even more than charity, it's the spiritual, the spiritual blessings and spiritual knowledge and spiritual guidance that a person has. Right? And you will find this many times, and this is a difference. This is going to show you the greater depth of Islamic humanism and Islamic ethics versus secular humanism. Secular humanism will say that all you have to do is be, treat your domestic staff and household out kindly and help them out charitably when their children are getting married or when they're sick. Islam says all of that, plus you have to have a fikr for the akhirah of your domestic staff and household help. Can they read Qur'an al-Kareem? Are they able to pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Do they have that knowledge which will guide them to leading a life that will bring them salvation on the Day of Judgment? Or are they spiritually illiterate? Yes, you might smile at them and you might say, I give them decent food and I give them their monthly salary on time and whenever their children get married or sick, I give them money. That's fine. So you help them in the worldly sense. Have you helped them at all in their akhir? And let's say they're your old staff and they've been with you for 10, 20, 30 years. So somebody's been with you for 10, 20, 30 years and you haven't helped them one iota in their akhirah. You haven't helped them one drop in their relationship with Allah Taala. So that's a shortcoming. And this is what he's saying. That is the first thing. It is your duty to guide them. It is your duty to whatever guidance you have or to connect them to sources of guidance if you're unable to do it. To have a fikr and concern for the akhirah and their spiritual well-being, not just their material well-being and their health. Alright? Beware of allowing them to neglect an obligatory or commit a forbidden act. That's why it's very important, especially that your own household staff and domestic health that you select, they should be people who pray for salah. They should be people who fast. They should be people who don't lie. They should be people who don't commit illicit acts in your absence. Now, I was focusing on this about the domestic staff because I was just using this to contrast the ethics thing. But uh, you first and foremost mentioned children and spouse. All right. So let's start with children. Is it simply sufficient for one's child that you make sure they had a good education or they went to an elite school or an elite university or an elite graduate degree program overseas? No, it's not sufficient. The real duty towards the children was to help them in their deen, in ibadah, in iman, in akhlaq, in sifat, in ilm. And if you didn't take care of their spiritual well-being and their akhirah, and you're only worried about their material well-being and their dunya, then you haven't fulfilled the rights of the child over you. Same thing for the spouse. Is it simply sufficient that you give her enough money for the monthly allowance, for the monthly expenses, or that you spend couple time with each other but there's no aspect of deen in your relationship. There's no discussion of Allah in your relationship. Each of you are not improving the other towards akhirah. 
then again, it just becomes a decentralized, simply materialistic relationship. So these were three examples that he gave, but actually it's about every single interpersonal relation, every single human interaction. So there are many things that aren't here, employer, employee, teacher, student, neighbor, neighbor, in any way that you interact with humanity. All right? Second, then he mentioned, so after the first thing was the duty was to guide them towards being. Second, teach them courtesy. Teach them adab. Teach them manners. And do not plant in their hearts the love of the world and its cravings, for you will thus have done them harm. So let's say, for example, when it comes to children, this is what used to be called, and even in earlier traditional Europe, spoiling the child, indulging every whim and demand of the child, because you might be planting in their hearts the love of the world and its cravings. It has been said that the wife and children of a man shall clutch him before Allah and say, O Rabb, this one did not teach us your rights upon us, therefore give us retaliation from him. And actually there's a verse in the Quran that isn't cited that, but has a similar meaning to this, that the children will testify against their parents on the day of judgment when they, Allah Ta'ala take, calls them to task for their misdeeds. So this is the second thing. Third, you must treat them with justice and graciousness. Two attributes, how to treat the spouse, how to treat the children, how to treat the staff, etc., etc. You must treat them with justice and graciousness. So first, justice. Okay, adal and fadl. Adal and fadl. Okay, adal means what is just and fair and what is their due. And fuzzle means to give them even more, to give them generously, graciously, beyond what is their right, beyond what is their due. So you must treat them with adl and fuzzle. Adl is to give them everything that Allah Ta'ala has made rightfully theirs. So this is what people normally talk about, hukuk al-ibad. It's interesting again, that when the secular Muslim talks about adab in Islam, this is the highest he can reach is hukuk al-ibad. He can never even reach the concept of fuzzle because he doesn't know about the tradition of spirituality. He just thinks that the greatest ethics lies in adl. So the Mashaik teach you have to have adl and fuzzle. Adl is hukuk, hukuk al-ibad. That you give them all the hukuk that Allah Ta'ala has made rightfully theirs in terms of expenditure, clothes, and living with them charitably. One of its obligations, one of those hukuk, is to take the wrong one's rights from the unjust among them. In a hadith, it is said that a servant, a slave, may be, a servant may be, sorry, a servant, a slave of Allah Ta'ala, may be recorded as being a tyrant when he has power over his family alone. That is when he treats him high-handedly. What does it mean? Normally, the word tyrant is used for a ruler who mistreats his citizens. So what Sayyidina Rasulullah said is that not even an individual can be a tyrant when? When he mistreats his family. So there's another way to become a tyrant. He has no rulers, he has no staff, he has no employees, he has nothing. It's just his family, but he, he is a tyrant over his family. He is a tyrant in his family. So he will be recorded as a tyrant and he will be made to face the same thing that the tyrannical rulers are made to face. Alright? So this is when he treats him high-handedly, treats him heavenly. As for, as for fuzzle, as for graciousness, this is to treat them gently, not to be harsh in asking them for the rights assigned to you by Allah SWT. So yes, not to be so harsh and insistent on your hukuk. 
to be gentle with them and to treat them with nobility. And then he says a beautiful thing, it's, and this is, is about family, but it can be about other relations also, and to laugh with them at times without falling into sin in a manner that removes estrangement and repugnance but maintains reverence and respect. So what does it mean? That you can't always be strict and stern. Sometimes you have to relax, be at ease, so laugh with them. But he knows that there's a danger that when you relax and you're at ease and you're merry and you're joyous, it's easy to slip in sinful ways of being merry and joyous. So he puts a caution on them. To be merry some, be joyous, be joyful, be happy, be laughing, but don't let that slip and slide you into any sin or any ghaflat. And at the same time, laugh so that it removes estrangement, means removes the taqallut, removes the formality in the human relation, and removes repugnance because sometimes laughter softens the heart and mends the hearts and might actually remove any grudges and grievances between people. But don't exceed again. Laugh only to the extent that it maintains reverence and respect. It maintains the status of izza or the status of dignity between human relations. Alright? So there should be some awe and reverence and respect that remains in the uh, family relations. Similarly, in any position like that, the employer should be jolly and joyful and merry with the employees, while at the same time being able to maintain his authority and leadership amongst them. Okay, the next about the social duties in the flock. You should forgive the wrongdoers among them and those who offend you. So if anybody did something wrong or anybody offended you from a spouse or children or employees or neighbors or etc., you should forgive them. Absolve them inwardly. So in your heart you should forgive them. For what they may have embezzled of your wealth, you will one day find on the side of good deeds. What does it mean? He gives an example. Let's say somebody stole from you. So if you forgive them, then the money that they stole from you, because you forgave that from them, that will be piled up as good deeds on your scales on the Day of Judgment. So then it won't be a loss. That's what he's trying to say. Basically. It's a very clever statement. It won't be a loss. It's a gain for you. You can convert the financial loss in dunya to akhirah gain in your amal on the scales by forgiving them. You convert the loss into a gain. Allah Akbar. So first, we're supposed to forgive them just by being forgiving and merciful. And second reason is to forgive them because it will be to your own benefit. Then he says, Ajib. It is not fitting that they acquire punishment because of you while you are rewarded because of them. Now what happens, you will be rewarded because they injured you, harmed you, betrayed you, maligned you, stole from you. So you will be rewarded by Allah Ta'ala for that in the day of judgment that you had to go through this difficulty and test and trial and you bore it with sabr. So you get reward from Allah Ta'ala because of their harm for you. Now then when you look at that, do you want them to get punished by Allah Ta'ala because of that? So better that you forgive them so they don't get punished by Allah Ta'ala. So then you remove, it becomes this positive sum transaction. Everybody wins and no one loses. Alright? It is not fitting that they acquire punishment because of you while you were rewarded because of them. Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam was once asked, and this is actually about slave or servant, how often should a slave be forgiven each day? 
So somebody must have asked, and at that time there was this concept of slavery, which is just akin to today's uh, in a different socioeconomic construct of today, which you call household help and domestic staff and land caretakers. So the Prophet responded that for 70 mistakes, 70 mistakes. Now those of you would know, some of you may know there's a hadith of Nabi Karim Sosam separately, that you should make 70 excuses for your fellow believers. So here the Prophet said, every day. So now, obviously, the corporate mind will be thinking that's going to make my life difficult if every day the junior partner makes 70 mistakes, it's going to be hard for the senior partner. Every day makes 70 mistakes. Every day the driver makes 70 mistakes. Every day the dean says the teacher made 70 mistakes. Allah Akbar. But that's the power of forgiveness. That's the power and extent of forgiveness that Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu wanted. This forgiveness touches upon your rights over them, but never those of Allah Subhanahu so What does it mean? If they violate the rights of Allah Ta'ala, then it's not your place to forgive. That's Allah Ta'ala's place to forgive. That's between them and Allah Subhanahu wa Your role in that is back to the first thing he said, is to guide them out of that disobedience, to guide them out of that betrayal of Allah Ta'ala, to guide them back into a life of obedience and loyalty to Allah Subhanahu wa Then he continues, devote a special protection and solicitude to the women of your household. <clears throat> teach them the rules, yani the shari, teach sharia rulings pertaining to menstruation, the obligations of ghusl, means purity, purification, the ghusl, wudu, etc., praying, fasting, the rights of their husbands, and other similar things. Alright. Uh, so this is the notion that men and husbands, but you see, you can only do that if you did all of the above. So that man or husband, number one, guards all of his own personal charges, Right? His tongue, ears, eyes, stomach, genitals, hands and feet. Then is a source of guidance and then treats with justice, fulfills all the hukuk. Then once you're doing all of that, then yes, you will be able to be in a position to be an educator of your spouse. And the spouse will be willing to take you as her educator. Then he mentions that for certain types of people, responsibility may be extensive and involve many people as is the case with rulers and scholars. So rulers, at whatever level they may be in government, they are responsible for whatever level of citizenry is under them. And the absolute ruler, the executive, be that president, prime minister, king, or whatever, is actually liable for every single citizen in the polity. And will be asked on the Day of Judgment about every single citizen in that entire realm of his rule for the entire duration of his rule. For ulama, so it's, here he means the scholars who are teaching in Darlum and they're actual formal proper students in their institutions. So they will be responsible for the students in their institutions. Each shepherd will be questioned about his flock, the hadith that he cited earlier. Allah SWT said in Quran, and Allah Ta'ala enjoins justice and goodness. And Sayyidina Rasulullah said, Ya made dua, O Allah. Treat gently those who are given authority over any of my nation and they treat them gently. So if the husband has authority over the wife and he treats the wife gently, the Prophet has made dua that Allah Ta'ala treat him gently. If the parents have authority over children and the parents treat the children gently, they have the Prophet's dua that Allah Ta'ala treats his parents gently. If there's a ruler, administrator, employer who's been given authority over whatever concept or level of underlings, and he treats them gently, then he has the du'as of the Prophet ﷺ that may Allah Ta'ala treat him gently. Alright? And treat harshly those who treat them harshly. If any husband 
who treats the wife harshly, parent who treats the children harshly, employer teaches employee harshly, ruler teaches etc. harshly. So he has the du'as of Nabi Akrim some working against him. That even the Prophet of Rahmatullah Alameen made du'a for Allah Ta'ala, you treat this person harshly. Why? Because you treated your creation harshly. This is a very important teaching. And deen is not complete just on doing those ibadat and salah and salawah and dhikr and fikr. Deen is only completed when a person has these akhlaq and has this way of interrelating with different members of creation. And the last hadith on this topic that he quotes, Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam said, No ruler dies having cheated his subjects except that Allah Ta'ala forbids Jannah to him. So if there was a ruler that was engaged in fraud or deception in any way of his citizenry and subjects, that Jannah is forbidden to such a person. Next now he mentions another topic. Be loyal to your parents. For this is the most certain duty. In this duty. Beware of severing your ties with them. Which is one of the greatest sins. Now severing of ties can have many meanings. One is outright literal. Severing of ties. Somebody says I don't talk and meet my parents anymore. Another which is, which is unfortunately more common. Is no I live with my parents. I physically live with them in the same house. But emotionally, I pretty much severed ties. In terms of emotion, love, affection, caring, sharing, that's finished. Maybe there's a bit of a transactional relationship left. Maybe there's occasional taking of money left. Maybe there's an occasional khidmat or service I offer them left. But otherwise, pretty much there's nothing there. That's also, it's not the full severing of ties, but it's a partial severing of ties. So we should maybe then rephrase this. Beware of any and all severing of ties. Beware of partial, occasional severing of ties, let alone full severing of ties. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the Quran, and this is uh, a verse that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Allah ta'budu illa iyahu wa bil walidayna ihsana that you should not worship anyone except for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala your Lord has decreed that you should worship, your Rabb has decreed that you should worship none other than Him and treat your parents with Ihsan excellently. And then the ayah continues that if one or both of them attain old age with you, say not oof to them, nor rebuke them, but rather speak gracious and gentle and kind words to them, and out of mercy lower to them the wing of humility, and make dua for them, Rabbil Hamhuma, Kamadabayani Sarira, that O oh my Rabb, have rahma and mercy on them, as they did my tarbiyah, you are my rub, and they did my tarbiyah, they nursed and cared for me when I was young. And elsewhere, the Prophet said in Quran, and give thanks to me, yani Allah Ta'ala, and to your parents. So Imam Muhammad in comments, notice how he, Allah associated the exhortation to treat them well with the unification of him. You need the command, in the first verse, the command of Tawheed came, Iyahu and the command of having Asan with Asan with parents came. And in the second verse, what came was thanks to Shukr to Allah Ta'ala came and then Shukr to parents came. So in thanking them with thanking him. So these verses establish the extreme importance of being on gracious behavior and grateful to one's parents. Now, 
again, because he always wants to mention the balance. And this is this that is very, it's something he's taken very intimately from Imam al-Ghazali. In the Iyal al-Mudin, Imam al always giving the itadal, always giving the itadal. Stressing something, but lest somebody stress it uniquely, showing, keep showing the other side, flipping it, reversing it, looking it from the other side. So what does he say here? You must therefore seek to make them, you know, your parents, pleased with you and obey them except in committing sinful things or in omitting obligations. And that's not a very important thing. There is no concept in deen of obeying parents when obedience to them lies in sinning against Allah Ta'ala or leaving the sunnah of Nabi Akareem sallallahu There is no concept of obeying parents when obedience to parents means missing out or skipping on some of the obligations or teachings of deen. Alright? But other than that, prefer them to yourself and give their affairs priority over your own. And this is again something that people have difficulty with when their parents get older. Right? They put the tasks for their parents on the bottom of the list. Then they start to view it as a burden. Then they start to have resentment. And they keep procrastinating and delaying these things. Disloyalty includes withholding from them any good that you are able to bring them. That's another thing. It's not just that there may be some care you could do for them. Maybe they don't even know it, so they haven't requested it of you. But you know that you could have done that, and you withhold that. Maybe you cleverly withhold it because you know they don't know I could do this. Right? Or I tried to make them not aware of this. This is also disloyalty. So disloyalty includes withholding from them any good that you were able to bring them, as well as frowning upon them, making any expression in your face of displeasure. Chiding means verbally reprimanding them, scolding them. Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam said, The scent of Jannah is perceived at a thousand years traveling distance, but not by one who is disloyal to his parents, or the one who severs the kinship bonds, or the adulterous old man, or the one who lengthens his garments out of vanity, for pride is solely the attribute of Allah SWT, Rabbil Alameen. إِنَّمَا الْكِبْرِيَاءُ لِلَّهِ رَبِّ الْآلَمِينَ Kibriya means this sha'an, shokat, pride, ghayrat. This is solely the attribute of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alright? So obviously he, Imam al-Hadadi, brought this hadith because of the, in this chapter because of the part about parents, but it also mentions a few other things. Right? This famous notion of lengthening the garments. And this can be even the upper garment or the lower garment when it passes the ankle is viewed as lengthening it out of vanity. Alright? Today people say that no, it's just orf and custom and culture and fashion. But uh, our deen, there are some things in our deen that are absolutes. And there's some things in our deen that are relative. Alright? So th- there are certain aspects to the laws of what should be covered and what should be uncovered. These are absolutes. A certain minimum length that your lower garment must be means it must pass your knees and cover your knee entirely and every posture and position and every kick and every jump and every bend and every nap and every position the knee should be covered because I say that because some people may if they strictly measure 
their long shorts to cover their knee, and when they bend down and go in sadzor, when they get out of the pool and climb up the ladder, at that moment the short climbs up above the knee. So it has to be long enough that in any physical position and posture, nothing from the knee is exposed. Now this is not a rational concept. If you ask a woman and you ask her to look, if you see my knee or you see one inch of my thigh, are you going to have lust for me? She'll say, I couldn't care less about your thigh. Right? But it's not a rational thing. You say, I'm 60 years old, I still have to cover my thigh. We say, yes. You say, I'm 70 years old, I have to cover my thigh. Yes. Because it's not based on rationality. It's based on scripture, revelation, prophecy. It's based on the teaching of Nabiya Kareem, Sallallahu So these are certain lines. So the line is drawn past the knee, and the line is drawn above the ankle. It's the same thing. Rationally speaking, showing one inch of thigh makes no difference. Rationally speaking, cover one inch of your ankle makes no difference. These things have no rational meaning. And the way the Jewish Hatshi would explain this, they use a beautiful phrase in Arabic, Amrun ta'abudiyun. It means that this is a matter purely done out of slavehood to Allah subhanahu There's nothing to do with maqsad, maslaha, faida, nothing to do with zarura, haraj, therefore nothing to do with urf, adat, nothing to do with any of these things. It's purely just as a slave. And a slave follows the rules of his master. Alright? A slave follows the rules of his master. Fair? Alright. And that's really where the pride comes by the way. The people also mistake that, no, no, I just, I don't wear this because in, in my culture wearing long garments is not considered pride. No, it's the fashion isn't the pride. The rebelling against the rules is what's considered pride. That's what is meant in the city of high pride. A lot of people must understand that, they, you know, hamari yato lambi patloon panos mein koi takabur nahi samji jati. No, 100% right. It's nothing to do with wearing the long trouser. It's refusing to be a slave. The refusal to submit. I'll give you another example. Eating pork, there's nothing rational in the prohibition to eat pork. There's nothing rational in that. Why can't you eat pork? There's no rational reason for that. Many times, we, this is one of the things I keep telling you people over and over again, when the rationalist, modernist Muslim tries to tell you that, oh no, we don't eat pork because it's a dirty animal. What are you talking about? The pork chop was grilled in 500 degrees Fahrenheit, completely fine. Science tells you it's not dirty anymore. They said, no, because it's a fatty meat. So I've trimmed all the fat. You can eat the cherby on the lamb chop. It's halal. <laughs> and you can't eat the lean meat on the pork chop. It's haram. There is no rational reason. There's no rational reason. It's out of slavery. So exactly. There's no difference. The same way you don't eat pork is the same way you don't let your garment go long. Out of slavery. Not for any reason. Not for any benefit. Not for any purpose whatsoever. Alright? Fair. And Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu said that the one upon whom mourning comes, and he is done now after mentioning this issue of obedience, that we don't obey parents when it means disobeying Allah subhanahu wa But beyond that realm, one should try to please one's parents. And to what extent, so this hadith makes it very clear, the one upon whom mourning comes and he has done what pleases his parents, but displeases Allah Ta'ala, I am pleased with him. Not disobeys, but displeases Allah Ta'ala. And the one upon whom mourning comes and he has done what displeases his parents but pleases me, I'm displeased with it. So I'll give you a very good example to show you what I mean. If your mom told you that please, you went on Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, do you really have to go tonight on Thursday? Can't you just stay home with me? So, teaching of the be yes, you stay home with your mom and you don't come here to this class. Because coming to this class is not one of the obligations of deen. 
And if you please your mother, that will be more pleasing to Allah SWT. So when you're talking about non-obligatory things, non-obligatory means other than the fara'id, other than the, other than the wajibat, and other than those things that are the dearest of sunnah mu'akkadah. Other than that, I'll give you another example. If my mother tells me that please don't wear a turban in front of me, I'll take the turban off. Because wearing a turban is not from the necessary, obligatory, or established sunnahs in that sense. It's definitely established to be a sunnah of Sayyidina Rasulullah but it's not established to that sense. And certainly not established to the level of pleasing one's parents are. So I gave you two examples of my own self, the turban and my class. So you get an idea of what is being said. Alright? Okay. Then, Ajib, like I told you, Mama is going to show you the other side of it now. Alright? Parents should help their children to be loyal to them by not insisting on every one of their rights. This is also something not, especially in Indo-Pak culture, very often. Number one off-quoted hadith at home is paradise lies at the feet of your mother. Right? That's the constant thing. Right? So what does it mean? That okay, if you're a parent and you love your child spiritually, and you don't want Allah Ta'ala to be displeased with your child, so maybe you reduce the list of demands that make your child pleasing to you. Because otherwise, if you make it so hard for your child to please you, and you know your Prophet has said that until he pleases you, he won't be pleasing to Allah Ta'ala, you're making it hard for your child to become pleasing to Allah Ta'ala. You have to become a doctor. Oh, oh, you know? You have to marry your first cousin. You were born and raised in Scotland, you have to marry your first cousin from the village. Why? Because, you know, that's the way it is. Right? And he says, but dad, I, you know, I won't be close to her. She doesn't even know English. You gotta do it. Right? And then quoting, and then, then, mashallah, the parents quote these hadith. Right? Then they become hadith scholars. And they start quoting these hadith at their children. Right? The paradise lies at the feet of your mother. Therefore, married your first cousin from the village. And because we have to get her a visa and bring her to England. Allah Akbar. And the, the child will be unhappily married his whole life because he feels no compatibility with his wife. Right? So this is wrong. So look at Imam al-Adad explaining this beautifully. Why are you raising the bar? So listen to him again. Parents should help their children to be loyal to them by not insisting, care. he went even further, not insisting on their hukuk, not on, on every one of their hukuk. Especially in these days. I think he's talking then. He's talking 300 years ago. More than 300 years ago. Especially in these days when loyalty is scarce, evil, rife, and parents consider that the most loyal of their children is the one who does not injure them. What he means is that at least they don't injure me. That's concerned. I mean, they drop the out of loyalty. That at least they don't beat me or injure me or harm me. Sayyidina Rasulullah, now this is a jeep, listen to this idiot. Sayyidina Rasulullah, he said, May God have mercy on a parent, may Allah have rahmah on a parent who helps their child to be loyal to them. Who helps their child to be loyal to them. Right? So then what would it mean? You have to combine the hadith. But the mother would say, Paradise lies at the feet of your mother, my son, but I'm not going to make you grovel at my feet. Right? I'm not going to make you grovel at my feet. Then now he moves outward beyond parents. Respect your ties of kinship. Kinship and start with the closest to you. This means siblings, immediate family, then extended family. Give generously of the good things you have and start with the nearest. 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, worship Allah ta'ala, associate nothing with him. It's the same we did this before. Behave with ihsan, excellence towards parents, near kindred, orphans, the indigent, the neighbor who is of kin, and the neighbor who is not. So he's quoting, citing this ayah to show that there's a progression. Moving from the inner circle to the outer circle. Starting with parents and near kindred, then orphans, then poor, then neighbors who are also family and then neighbors who aren't. Alright? So, and it also, this verse also shows us this has to be part of our social interaction. Obviously, we all have parents. But how many of us are even engaging in any orphans that we can be, do, be, be, be being ahsan, having excellence from them? To have ahsan with an orphan, you first have to have some engagement, some interaction. How many of us are having interactions with the poor? How many of us have interaction with our neighbors who are not of our kin? If you don't even have an interaction in the first place, Asan, the, the opportunity to have Asan in that interaction won't even exist. And then he continues that Allah SWT has in many contexts enjoined kind behavior toward kin in his precious book. And Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam has said, charity to kin is both charity and joining of kinship bonds. This is why it was preferred that if you have an extremely poor person in your relatives who is uh, eligible for zakat, it's better to pay zakat for them. If you have extra sadaqa that you want to give beyond the mandatory zakat, and there's somebody in your relatives who may not be so poor that they need zakat, but they're struggling, they need help, maybe their business collapsed or something happened, it's better to give sadaqa to them. And then you get this double reward, one of giving charity and second of being honoring the kinship family bond. And another hadith of Nabi Akareem sallallahu alayhi let him who believes, means let any who believe in Allah ta'ala on the last day, honor their neighbor. And the Jibreel Islam enjoined me so often with regard to the neighbor that I thought he would allow him to inherit. This famous statement that Nabi Akareem sallallahu alayhi wa that the neighbor, I thought he was going to get a shared inheritance. Right? And these days, many times, we don't even know who our neighbors are. This is part of also... This is what the sociologists used to call alienation in modernity, and a special phenomenon of living in urban, in the urban city, that you become so alienated. And then the internet technology has made this even more, that you're so wired to global highway, that you're so unaware of your own street. You're unaware of your own gully. You'd have no idea even if two doors down from you, somebody felt extremely sick, you wouldn't even know it. If three doors down from you, somebody was diagnosed with stage 5 cancer, you would know it. Yes, you'll know when the Zinada leaves their house. Beyond that, you would have no idea whatsoever. And then you may show up and, oh, what happened? Yeah, she'd been sick in bed for two years. And she had deep, and said, oh, I didn't know. I didn't know. Right? So this is our, this is our, I mean, I'm no better. This is our condition. We are all sort of victims of this alienation. Then it continues, maintaining ties of kinship and kind behavior towards neighbors will not be complete unless one refrains from harming them. And then listen to what he says, endures the harming that they do. Endures with suburb. What does it mean that you've never, ever, ever met your neighbor, but one day you come home and you see a potato chip wrapper in front of your gate. Now you think, okay, I'm going to knock on my neighbor's door and tell them that, you know, you can't even endure one potato chip wrapper. You've never called, you've never rang their bell to inquire about their health. You've never inquired about their well-being. 
you never inquired if they may need anything. You never inquired anything I'm doing that may be disturbing you to buy a car, car, my kids, bike riding. No, but you saw one potato chip wrapper in front of you and you happened to have seen that their kid was eating that same potato chip when you left. Now you're ready to ring their bell. Hmm? That's how little zarf and how little sabr we have. Hmm? Or in this society, some parking on the green grass. Allah Akbar. Hmm? It happened to me once in BHA. We, the driver was driving and I was in the car and then he, uh, we, he had to get roti. So he stopped and he just parked in front of somebody's house. And he often got the roti. He hopped out quickly to get the roti. Within 30 seconds, three security guards came and stranded the car. And then they, then they saw me. They did a little bit. You know, they came in full force. And alhamdulillah, for us, they had respect for the sunnah appearance. Sir, you know, Walton Nazar, stop, please, tell the security guards, stop, Walton Nazar. Who was Kuna Nazar? Walton Gadi on the net. They said, oh, what's the city of roti clear? Okay, sir. And he, you know. Now I had two choices. I could try to get into a long discussion with the security guards about the finer points that this is still actually public property, or I could move the car. Obviously, I got around and I moved the car, right? Hmm? So this is the, the lack of zarf that people have, all right? So endure the harming they do and does good to them according to the means at one's disposal. Prophet has said, the maintainer of family ties is not him who rewards acts of goodness, but rather is the person who, when family ties are severed, he joins them again. What it means is not the one who, when his brother gives him goodness, he rewards it in kind. The real maintainer of family ties, when his brother cuts ties with him, he reaches out back to his brother and patches up the family ties with him. And another hadith, habituate yourselves to kindness when people behave kindly towards you and do not behave badly when people behave badly towards you. It means reciprocate the kindness of others when they're kind to you, but do not reciprocate their bad behavior when they behave badly to you. Wabillahi tawfiq and tawfiq and success to do amal on all of these teachings of social duties and character and ethics comes from Allah subhanahu wa Alright, the next chapter, which I won't be able to do entirely, but I definitely wanted to uh, read you something. This is on kindness and charity. On kindness and charity. So after moving from the social duties, uh, now on kindness and charity. You must love and hate for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for this is one of the firmest handfuls of faith. So this is called Al-Hub Fillah and Al-Bugz Lillah. Alright? That love and dislike should all be done for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And in one hadith, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, the best of deeds are love and hate for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When you love that creation who is obedient to Allah ta'ala because of their obedience, and hate the one who is disobedient to Allah ta'ala because of his disobedience and not for any other reason, then you are one who truly loves and hates for the sake of Allah subhanahu Now he's going to come and mention this too later, but I probably won't mention it today. So that that, that dislike or bogs or hate for the person rather is construed in our deen as hate for the sin, not for the sinner. Right? So on the one hand you have this hate, the sin, but not the sinner. On the other hand you have this hatred for the sake of Allah subhanahu 
So when you combine these two teachings, it means that the dislike, repugnance that we feel is for the sinful aspect or sinful trait or sinful character of the sinner, not for their person themselves, not for their being themselves, not for their zat themselves. All right? So I can put it like in a few sentences in English. Hate the envy of the envier. Don't hate the person for, who has the envy. Don't hate the person who is the envier. Second sentence, hate the envier due to his envy only, but don't hate the envier in any other way, otherwise love him as the person that he is. Alright? This is the way you would sort of reconcile and join these different teachings. Alright? <clears throat> and the greatest example of this is the way Sayyidina Rasulullah interacted with Abu Lahab and Abu Jahab. Because Abu Lahab and Jahal, according to some ulama, are the two most evil human beings ever. And others say that the competition is coming from Fir'aun and a few other great mm, contenders for this category. But obviously Sayyidina Rasulullah is undisputed greatest human being ever. So the way the greatest human being, the Prophet interacted with the worst human beings, he never hated them. Constantly used to meet them, constantly used to make dua for them, constantly tried to hope for them. So this is sunnah. This is sunnah. Yes, he hated the kufr that was in them. He hated the arrogance that was in them. He hated the hatred with which they tortured Sayyidina Bilal. He hated the torture in them. He hated the murder in them. He hated those things in them, but he didn't hate them. You understand? So it's a subtle, it's a subtle thing. And that, that, that is Sayyidina Rasulullah, some profound understanding of humanity. Alright? Okay. If you find in yourself no love for the people of goodness because of their goodness, this is also a very important thing, and no loathing for the people of evil because of their evil, then know that your faith is weak. What does it mean? That no, for example, there are people, and a lot of people increasingly, in, in especially in more secularized segments of Muslim societies, they have stopped loving the people of goodness because of their goodness, because they don't like them for something else. So they say, oh, you know, no, I'm sure that person's good and pious, but, you know, the way they talk, or the way they walk, or their class, or their background, or their approach, or their outlook, or their education, or lack thereof, there are many other reasons they don't like them. But what they were supposed to do was like them for their taqwa, like them for their ibadah, like them for their deen. But instead of doing that, they chose to dislike them despite their deen and taqwa and ibadah and dislike them for a whole other list of characteristics. And the flip also has happened. Instead of staying away from those who are loathsome and evil, liking them for other reasons, okay, no, it's okay, I know that, you know, they make mockery of religion, I know they drink, I know they do this, I know they do that, I know he's very rude, I saw him being very rude to the secretary the other day, but I like him because he's my professor. Right? So, discounting their evil attributes and liking them for your own reasons. Or discounting their good attributes and disliking them for your own reasons. This is not, this is, this is what the Prophet was trying to counter when he said love and dislike should be for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Should be in the nisbat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So then Imam Muhammad Muhammad continues, keep the company of the best of people and avoid that of the worst. Sit with the virtuous and avoid the unjust. The Prophet said, Al-Mar'u ala deen khalilihi. 
that a person will be on the deen of that person who they make their intimate companion. Therefore, let each one of you consider carefully who to associate intimately with. And another hadith, which is very interesting, that a good companion is better than solitude, and solitude is better than an evil companion. All right, and I want to mention very strongly that one very big evil companion of today is the internet. It's better to be alone without Wi-Fi and wireless and internet than it is to be alone with internet. Because internet can be an evil companion. Internet can be an evil companion. And in our generation, it was 50-50, and those who are younger than me, you are 100% internet generation. Those who are older than me, they, in their quest to ever be young, they also try to be fully wired up. Allahu hmm? Akbar. I've met some people, mashallah, in their 50s and 60s, who are very, they're fully clued up on WhatsApp and iPhone, and they, do, they, they know everything. Hmm? Internet is an evil companion. Internet is an evil companion. Solitude is better, and, and, and the test for you to know if you're addicted to the internet is the withdrawal test. For anything, if you want to know if you're addicted to something, check do you experience withdrawal symptoms. Withdrawal means that if you ever go without internet for 24 hours, do you get jitsy? Do you get jittery? Are you missing your keypad? Are you missing your screen? Are you missing the sports feed, news feed, politics feed, whatever it is that you track and do on the internet? Even your email, WhatsApp, whatever it is, right? I've been without my Pakistan WhatsApp for about uh, three weeks now. Hmm? Huh? Three weeks. Allah Akbar. A person gets jittery. Hmm? Allah Akbar. Yeah. That's an evil companion. That's an evil companion. So solitude is better than evil companion. Now another thing, interesting thing, another separate comment on this, is that lots of times people end up in bad company because they're lonely. Whether that bad company is infant, but I meant bad company as people, right? That's an interesting thing here. Solitude is better than an evil companion. And sometimes in solitude that makes you lonely, right? So then a person asks the question, well, you know, this is my problem, that when I feel lonely I turn to these things or these people. Now that is a strange thing. Because for a person like Imam al-Hadad, loneliness was a foreign concept. How can you be lonely when you have Allah subhanahu wa so that's true, that's something that's missing, that he's not going to be able to help you on that one. Because he can't conceive of this, the type of loneliness me and you sometimes have, this 21st century loneliness. It's actually because of being distant from Allah subhanahu wa And these type of people who are muqaddab and close to Allah subhanahu wa they know such concepts of loneliness like that. Right? And so then the cure for that loneliness is not an evil companion. In other words, let me explain it. You're not feeling lonely because you're distant from Allah. You're feeling lonely because you're lonely, right? But the cure for this, that because I'm feeling lonely, I turn to bad company. And I'm not able to turn to Allah. The cure for that is deen. The cure for that is the things he mentioned in the first few chapters. To have yakin in Allah SWT, to do more ibadah of Allah SWT, to know more about Allah SWT, so that you're more attracted to Allah SWT, to know more about His mercy, so you feel more in love with Allah SWT. When you have more of those things, then when you're lonely, you might feel lonely, but you're more likely to turn to Allah SWT and the Musallah. 
And when you don't have those things, listen to me very carefully, when you do not have those things, when you don't have the love for Allah Ta'ala, when you don't have a connection with ibadah, when you don't have the ability to focus and remember Allah Ta'ala, when you make dua, you don't have feelings when you recite Quran, then when you're lonely, you won't turn to those things. Instead, when you're lonely, you turn to the bad company or to the evil companion called the internet. So what we do when we're lonely is also, it's not indicative, it's reflective of our spiritual condition. And so one great reason, one great benefit, not reason, one great benefit that occurs when a person improves their spiritual condition is when they're lonely, they're less likely to sin. And when they're lonely, they're less likely to fall in bad company. And most of the nice believers, I mean by nice believers, I mean like you people or the people listening, people who want to be good believers and don't want to sin, most people like that who actually believe in Allah Ta'ala, believe it's wrong to sin, want to be loyal to Him, most of them mostly sin because they're lonely. This is, this is something I can tell you from 20 years of experience. The vast majority of people who would listen to a class like this that's a certain type of person, right? A person who is, believes in Allah, wants to compose with Allah. They pretty much sin because they're lonely. If they're not lonely, they don't sin. Right? Now the trick is to try to turn the loneliness, in loneliness to turn to Allah instead of turning to sin. Alright? So, uh, if nothing else, uh, I would say, remember the hadith. Even recite this hadith. Even you can repeat this hadith. You can even make weird of these short hadiths. Sometimes they're weird. Weird in the sense that you recite it repeatedly to inculcate its meaning in your mind and heart. To impress it on your heart. You keep reciting with your tongues in order to inscribe its reality on your heart. And that solitude is better than evil companions. Solitude is better than bad company. Loneliness is better than sin. You have to keep reinforcing the concept if reinforcing the concept is done for you through repetition, repeat it. If reinforcing the concept is done through listening to this commentary again, listen to it again. Whatever you have to do, but the concepts have to be reinforced over and over again. The concepts that Imam Muhammad is teaching us and the concepts that he is out, he's collecting for us in these verses of Quran and from the hadith of Nabi Kareem sallallahu Know that associating with people of goodness and keeping their company implant the love of goodness in the heart and help to practice that goodness. So you need both things. You need to love the goodness. You need to practice it. Again, this is what most of us are problem. We love the goodness. We love this stuff. We love hearing that there are people like this. It makes us so happy. But it's hard for us to practice it ourselves. It's hard for us to practice it ourselves. So you need to sit with people who also love it and you need to start sitting with people who practice it. And similarly, while associating with the people of evil and keeping their company, implant the love of evil in the heart and the love of practicing that evil. The one who associates closely with a particular group of people inevitably ends up loving them, whether they are good or evil. Because association leads to love. Suhba leads to mahabba. Suhba leads to munasiba. Sohaba leads to uns. Companionship leads to affinity, congeniality, compatibility. Alright? 
and a man is with those he loves both in this world and the hereafter. This is referring to another famous hadith of Nabi Yaqeen sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, al-mar'u ma'aman ahabba, that a person will be with those whom he loves. So I'm just going to do two, I'm going to read the next uh, two or so paragraphs very quickly to you and just comment it all together. Be merciful to the servants of Allah Ta'ala. So now he's gone all out. In the previous chapter was your own sphere, right? Of interaction, parents, children, etc. Now it's his higher creation. Be merciful to the, all the servants, creatures of God. And compassion, be, be merciful to the servants of God and compassionate to his creatures. And be gentle and kind. And of engaging manners. And easy to approach. Beware of being callous, coarse, obscene, or difficult to approach. The Prophet has said, May Allah Ta'ala is only merciful to those of his servants who are merciful. And those who show no mercy are shown no mercy. And he said, A believer is affable and easy to approach. There is no good in anyone who is neither affable nor easy to approach. Then he continued, teach the egg, so I just, this one paragraph. So this is clear to everybody, right? You have to be kind and merciful and gentle to everyone. This thing about being affable and easy to approach is just fanciness. Affable is what he was saying earlier, that laugh and smile, be merry, be open. Have an open countenance, an open expression, an open personality. Easy to approach doesn't mean that we're always there 24-7 on call all the time. Easy to approach means you should not be harsh and callous and mean. The personality should be open. The expression should be open. The manner of speech should be open. Not closing. Alright? Teach the next, teach the ignorant. Guide those who stray. Remind the distracted. And beware of neglecting any of these things by saying, only those who possess knowledge and practices can teach and remind. I'm not one of them, so I'm not worthy to guide others. For such is the attribute of the great. Imam Hazrat says 300 years is before this is early, right? He said, this is nothing but a satanic deceit. For teaching and reminding are part of practicing what one knows. And great men only become great by the fuzzle of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and by their guiding Allah ta'ala's creation to his path. If you are unworthy now, then the only way you can become worthy is to do good and invite people to it. Evil lies only in making claims and leading others to other than the truth. All right? So here he was talking about dawah, that the greatest kindness and charity to another human being is whatever little you share, it's fine, you know, for I'm not an alam, but we're not asking you to formally teach somebody. We're not asking you to make somebody an alam. If you're not an alam, you're not going to make somebody an alam, right? But if you learn some hadith in these last four nights, you should share it with people you know. If you learn some verses in these four nights, you should share it with those who you know. If you learn some points, tips, ways, reminders to get connected to them, you can share that with them, you know, right? Transmission doesn't require scholarship. Yes, formal scholastic teaching requires formal scholastic learning. Mere transmission, which is called knuckle, mere transmission just requires having received the transmission. To receive the transmission and an honesty to transmit it onward in the manner in which you received it. And the inner humility to know I may be very well transmitting what I have yet to benefit from, but while I'm also struggling myself to practice and benefit from what I've heard, why don't I share it with others? They can also get started on this task. Because receiving the transmission is an instant. And being able to benefit and practice it takes time and effort. So while I'm undergoing this process of trying to practice this, I might as well share it with others. 
And I shall share the book with others, share the link with others, right? While I may myself be a work in progress. All right? Last paragraph for tonight. Comfort the, comfort the brokenhearted. Be gentle to the weak and the needy. Console the poor. Be lenient with the insolvent, means the bankrupt and those in debt. And lend to those who ask you. And he quotes the hadith that the, the Prophet said, the reward for a loan exceeds that for charity eight times. This is because a loan is taken only by one who is in need of it. Which is to mean that obviously zakat is given to those who are needy. Sadaqah can be given to anybody. You might end up giving sadaqah to somebody who might be not in dire need of it. Right? But a loan, I mean if the loan taker is also following due diligence in Islamic teachings, that they only take a loan out of need. So it means that when you gave a loan to somebody, they were in need. And then all those hadith come. That the, like for example, the Prophet said that the person who fulfills the needs of his fellow believer, Allah Ta'ala fulfills his needs. Alright? Love for one's fellow believer, but you love for yourself. Alright? Console those who are stricken by adversity, because the Prophet said, the one who consoles the person stricken by adversity, what does that mean? To help him endure that adversity patiently has a reward similar to the one who has to endure it patiently themselves. Alright? Uh, Alright. We're going to stop over here. And I think this is enough to get you people started. Apparently the whole thing is on the internet. We got that from the internet. Right? So you can, and this is a text that is quite easy. Uh, in many places it's self-explanatory and maybe sometime in the future we may again teach parts of it but I got you started on the two main sections of Ibadat and Akhlaq and the key thing is now to practice also sometimes a person may want to take some of these things slowly right? and even just these few chapters that we did in four nights it's a lot to digest, it's a lot to practice it's a lot to put into practice Sometimes it's a good idea to spend now a few days, weeks, maybe months even, simply trying to practice what was read and what was taught and what was shared. Right? But no doubt, like I told you in the very first session, that this book is a veritable gold mine. And we feel that it's a great manual. If somebody wanted a manual that, okay, look, there's the Quran, and there's so much tafsir of Quran, and there's so many thousands of hadith, and so much commentaries on those hadith, I'm just a beginner, and can you give me some beginning manual? How can I engage and interact and interface with the Quran and Sunnah and what I can get some practical pieces for my life? And so really I feel that this book in English is probably one of the best short, simple, thin volume, single manuals you could get. And there are others uh, as well. Uh, the point is to begin somewhere and to start practicing. Because deen is about practice, deen is about amal. We make dua on Allah Ta'ala, give us tawfiq to make amal. So as I mentioned in the beginning as well, uh, that today is the last session. There will not be a session tomorrow night. Okay? Uh, next program we will be having is going to be on Saturday, September 24th, inshallah, most likely in model time. Most likely in model time, inshallah. Right? That will be inaugurating what we call monthly bian. So we plan to have one proper monthly bian, which is open to men and women, so you can bring your families and children and all of that. And that we plan to rotate around different neighborhoods of Lahore. Right? In my absence, there will be some other ulama uh, who will, inshallah, give those bians. But 
for the next September, October, November, December, these four months are waiting to sell. So next day on release, Saturday, September 24th, and if you are signed up, you will get the uh, notification email SMS. <laughs> Yet if we have failed to do adl with others, we have failed to give fazl to others. Yet if you have given so much fazl to us, and you have withheld your adl, your rightful and just punishment from us, Ya Rabbi Kareem, you are Kareem, we want to become Abdul Kareem. You are Rahim, we want to become Abdul Rahim. We want to have rahim and karam to others, the same way you have shown so much rahim and karam to us. Ya Rabbi Kareem, make us better spouses, make us better parents. Make us better siblings, make us better children, make us better friends, make us better neighbors. Put more care and compassion in our heart for the poor and the needy. Put more love and compassion in our heart for the orphan and the widow. And it became, let us revive that sunnah tradition of being a benefit to society, a benefit to humanity. And yet, let us make deen and hidayah the first and foremost benefit that we bring to others. Let dawah to you and dawah to all the paths that lead to you be the greatest kindness and charity that we are offered to others. In these few nights, we have learned so many teachings, so many ways to become pleasing to you, so many paths that can draw us to you. Let us not become mahroom, ya Rabb. The laziness is still there. Our nafs is still there. The weight of our sins is holding us down. But you know, this is the season of change, the month of change, the days and nights of change, the blessed moments of Zulhijjah. Just in a few days, your lovers will go to Mina and they will proceed to Arafah and Muzdalafah and Ya Rabb you will forgive millions of them there millions of them billions of their sins Ya Rabbi Kareem we ask that you forgive us and all of the Ummah Ya Rabbi Kareem and accept the Hajj of all the Hajjaj accept the Ummah and Hajj of all of those who are there Ya Rabbi Kareem Ya Rabbi give us tawfiq to learn more on deen practice more on deen share more on deen center our life and our heart and our beings on deen Ya Allah Ya Rabbi Kareem ربنا تقبل منا إنك أنت السميع العليم وتب علينا إنك أنت التواب الرحيم وصلى الله تعالى على حبيبه سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين برحمتك يا أرحم الراحمين